Shut up and sit down. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of Cine Star, episode one. I'm your host, Show Hurley. I am your co-host, Sean Ferrick. And this week, we're going to be joined by Clone Star's manager-in-chief, Ed English. Ed, how are you? I'm good, Show. Hi, Sean. Thanks how for are having you getting me. on? Thanks very much for managing us. Can I have a pay rise? No. Next question. <laughs> Everyone have a nice <laughs> evening, and I will talk. <laughs> Ed has now closed his notebook and is <laughs> yeah. moving on with the clo- with the podcast. Um, Ed, we're here to discuss The Godfather. You're the one who suggested this to us. In fact, you suggested it so much that you kind of just were randomly messaging me at night going, have you watched it? And then another message saying, are we recording a podcast on this tonight? I just need to know. So I don't think you understand the kind of concept of your know, planning and things like that. So Not Godfather, why? Why did you pick the Godfather for us to watch? For, obviously, there's going to be a million reasons, but I'm curious for you specifically, why? I love this film and I have loved this film for years. I know, now, I, I, I'm a little bit obsessed with kind of all things mafia in cinema and TV. I, 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 that's my, my shtick. I, lo- I love all this stuff. And this, of course, is the, this is the granddaddy of them all. And everything that followed is tipping its hat to it. And it, it shifted the genre, but uh, it shifted away from kind of some of the mafia movies that were made before where you had things like Bonnie and Clyde and Al Capone. And it was all viewed as this kind of, they were shot as the enraged outsider. And the bad guy always got his comeuppance at the end. And, and The Godfather shifted that. And it brought you inside it to a certain extent. And we'll talk more about the cinematography and how you're on the outside. But, but ever since then, mafia movies have been about this duality of, you know, this kind of honor system, which is nonsense. Obviously, they're all murderers and thieves, but th- this kind of duality of, of good versus evil and living in an underworld with, it, with its own set of codes and rules, as opposed to here's this criminal who does all these mad things and eventually ends up in prison or shot at the end of it, you know. So, and, so basically, and, what, what we're saying is like this kind of added depth to kind of an entire genre that, that huge basically... amount of depth that had it but was never really kind of fully explored until this point and, and everything since then has been exploring it you know so if we, and, and I mean the thing that everyone will know from recent years obviously is the Sopranos and the Sopranos is steeped in everything to do with the Godfather like Sopranos characters in character on screen talking about the movies and, and doing impressions of the movies and and there are scenes in in, in the Sopranos which are lifted straight out of Godfather the, there's a scene where they're, they're, they're interrogating a guy called Matthew Bavalacqua who shot Christopher and spoilers for a 20 year old series but they they lift the scene from where Michael confronts um, the guy who killed Sonny who fingered Sonny his, his, his brother-in-law like give him a drink and calm him down and then have him killed it, it's it's rinse and repeat it, 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 so, so it's, it's everywhere it's in it's in everywhere in, in, in anything to do with Mafia ever since but it's in it's in pop culture as well like it's in The Simpsons it's in Family Guy you know about everyone to say, like... touches it yeah, I was about to say, like, if you, like, when I was watching the movie, I was really shocked by kind of, actually, I wasn't shocked. Like, nearly every scene is in The Simpsons at some point. Yeah. <laughs> They're going, like, <laughs> it's absolutely ever. And it's also, um, the Sean, you'd notice as well, like, the, you know, the start of the long Halloween, the Batman story. It Like, yeah. Sorry, just the long Halloween. It's the Godfather in Gotham City. Yeah, that's um, the, very, the very start of it. The whole thing of, you know, look, look at the license plates and taking photos. And like even the very opening line, I believe in um, in Gotham City and all this kind of thing. And the first line, this is I believe in America. 
and all that kind of stuff. So just like getting into, so actually I've asked you that, Ed, why you wanted to pick it. Sean, you were very excited when I said we were picking The Godfather. What's your connection with it? So this is, so The Godfather is my father's favorite film uh, and has been forever. Like I've been hearing about The Godfather almost as long as I've been hearing about Star Trek. And I was, oh, I think I was in my very early teens when I watched it the first time around and I definitely didn't get it. Um, not it's not that it's in any way bad or anything, but it's just there's so many themes that as an adult I can pick up on so much more. Even if you, you understand the violence, that's fairly straightforward. Um, but the themes of family, the themes of honor, you know, the themes of justice in its own in how it's presented here make an awful lot more sense. And I say that to kind of agree with you as well, Ed. To kind of agree, the rest of it, you're totally wrong. No, but to agree with you, is that probably an awful lot of this maybe warped idea of justice and honor comes from this film, you know, kind of paying back in kind things like that. And so that's so I was a very young teen uh, through my dad that uh, I first saw this film. But it's one that I will, I mean, happily say this is a film that lives up the reputation. Um, and, it, and, and it's very, very hard for a film with such a reputation to ever meet expectations. But I feel that it does. It doesn't give a hoot if you have plans tonight. It doesn't care whether you slept well last night because it's three hours. It's going to tell its story and you can shut up and listen. Because also um, like and, and it's happened every single time I've watched the movie. So I know it's not just my speaker system is that, oh my God, the sound balance, you turn it up really loud to hear the dialogue and the next thing your eardrums are taken out as a car explodes. <laughs> and it's just like, ah, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing or not, but that's how much it does not care about, you know, your setup. I um, think what you're, complaint, yeah. what you're saying as well is like, for me, I didn't watch this until 2014, I think it was. So like it was eight years ago. And my biggest concern was that it had been, so hyped up over the years that I was worried I'd watch it and think it was absolute garbage. And when I watched it the first time, I was underwhelmed, I won't lie, and I haven't watched it properly since. So sitting down, I was there going, Christ almighty, have I watched this and I think it's crap, I'm in trouble. But it's something we get across when we go into the kind of the story side of it. There is so much going on in this film, it's actually astonishing. It is like you could have done it as a miniseries easily, but to put in so much, like even going back on it right now, like some of my favorite scenes, and you'd say, Oh, that was brilliant. And you realize there was like 40 minutes in, there was about 27 storylines that happened at that point. And then you have this, and there was another 50 storylines who arrived then as well. And it balances it out so bloody well. And I think it's one of those movies, I think you have to be kind of a bit more say streetwise world kind of you know knowledgeable to kind of really fully appreciate what's kind of gone on i think the big thing that we that we will have missed out on is ed as you said that we didn't have an under see, see the seismic shift between what was previously made in terms of mob movies and then this which completely you know smashed the mold and this was totally different to anything that had seen been seen before but what we'll do is we'll get into it then. We'll start talking about, say, behind the scenes stuff, the production of it. So 1972, The Godfather is released, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, based on the book by Mario Puzo, who actually helped write the screenplay as well. It was the winner of three Oscars, Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. One of the things I found really funny as going back through the Empire magazine about the 50th anniversary of the film is um, their attempt to get 
the right director in place. And Francis Ford Coppola had come off the back of a few poor films and he kind of thought that he was going to get fired from uh, this. What I really enjoyed about one of the stories he told was that he found out who it was who was trying to get him fired. And in true Godfather fashion, he fired them first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, he talks about that in the, um, if you watch the director's, you know, this talk over thing that the directors do sometimes, he talks about how he did that and how he did it. I think he said he did it on a Wednesday because he knew they wouldn't find someone else by the end of the week. <laughs> Once he turned into the next week, then he was blowing more of the budget, and they were just like, "What the hell? Let him finish it." That was kind of his thought process. But uh, it is for for him. It is. It's definitely. Uh, you know, it's cornerstone of his career. It's just it, it launched him and it, and it made him and and it did similar things for people like Pacino and Keaton. You know, and and it rescued Martin Brando's career, which had been spiraling downwards in the nineteen sixties. Um, and he went on to things like Apocalypse Now afterwards. It was a huge, huge movie in all of these people's careers, I would think. I think this is one of those movies, isn't it, that like it massively, your enjoyment of the movie massively benefits when you sit down and actually do a lot of reading on what happened behind the scenes on it. Because you might just, you know, we all know Francis Ford Coppola is a very, you know, is like famous name and all that. But when I was reading about his trials and tribulations beforehand, like the fact that, you know, he had a small family, he was broke, he had no, basically he had no way out. And then he was offered this and, you know, he had to fight in the studio on say the script on certain of his casting choices and then on the budget and things along those lines. And it's just, it was astonishing how we kind of got, how basically he pulled it all together. There's a lot of back and forth on the casting, um, uh, and people like Duval was supposed to play Tom Hagen, or or sorry, excuse me, Duval was supposed to play Sonny, and Sonny was supposed to play Michael. There's a lot of this kind of back and forth, and and I've I've often sat down and thought, could this work if it was cast a different way? You know, could you could you shuffle these actors around? Could you put James Can in Michael Corleone's role, and would it still work? And, and I kind of think no, you know. Yeah. I think it's really, really well balanced. There's, there's scenes in this movie where Bobby Duval and James Caan are, you know, they're talking and they're arguing and they're almost dancing around each other. And it's just, it's done so well. And the, the interplay is fantastic. And Brando then sitting in the background with the heavy face prosthetics. They put, they put a load of prosthetics and makeup on him because he's only like 15 years older than Can and Pacino. And they were trying to make him pass as their dad. And, and they had to do all this stuff. And that's one of the reasons for the, the not the reason, but it's one of the reasons for the lighting of him as well to make him look that bit older. But, but I do wonder, like, with the casting, and he fought for a lot of this casting, could it have worked? I don't know what you guys think. Could it have worked if it was shuffled around, you know? Could, could you put Can in Sonny's role or in Michael's role? I, I, I don't see it. I don't, I, no, I, I think it's a testament to how well they all played the parts. But also, I'd say for myself, I'm just, I'm so, they're so locked in. That's what Michael Corleone looks like. That's what Sonny looks like, uh, you know, and certainly... That's what the Godfather looks like that, you know, if God forbid this gets a remake at some point because it's Hollywood, um, you know, best of luck is all I will say to whatever, whatever performer is mad enough to take on these parts. Um, But like, I remember, I think it was, I'm going to say must've been maybe the first or second time because I've seen this film, I think maybe five times now. Um, well, the first and second I was watching it and I almost didn't recognize Pacino because from my point of view, Pacino was obviously a much older shouty man because I think the control he has in this role that you do see again in Godfather 2, but it is slipped by Godfather. Well, it's not slipped, sorry, but as in he's become 
the Pacino that's a bit more recognizable of modern times. Um, it's like chalk and cheese, you know, whereas because I see James Caan as Sonny back in that day, I'm like, oh, no, no, he couldn't. He couldn't have had the control of Michael. He could, couldn't have done that. Now, I'm sure he bloody could have. I mean, they're actors. They do their job. for God's sake. No one's I special. Do. I know. I'd say with James Can, like you couldn't see him just kind of sitting there being all polite. Like I'd say, like he just wanted to just throw something in someone's head at some point for absolutely no reason. Well, well, there's a there's a funny story actually about James Can. Is there's a funny story is that he very famously hates being still. Right, he really hates it, and so half of the gag with Rob Reiner casting him in Misery was that he was chained to a bed for three quarters of the film oh and it drove him nuts for the, for the filming duration. He got so antsy during it and I said, yeah, we'll do that shot again. Yeah, we'll do that shot again just to wind him up. So it's, it's funny, quite literally, it's very, I can't imagine him being, have this, the stillness and the control of Michael, of Al Pacino, sorry. What we were saying about like the background to it and things like that, I didn't get a chance to bloody watch it because I only spotted it last night. There's actually a new TV series out about the making of the godfather is called the offer uh miles teller plays the um i think the title role i think if i'm right uh francis for coppola says in the empire magazine um say interview that he's kind of saying it's about he's i think he said it's based on a producer who's never around and things like that like but again like there's always going to be liberties with these kind of things uh kind of taken and things like that just looking into casting, um, like again, we've got some absolutely astonishing people here. So we've got Marilyn Brando as Don Vito Corleone, Al Pacino as Michaels, James Caan as Sonny, Robert Duval as Tom Hagen, or sorry, Bobby Duval as Ed says, because uh, Ed knows Robert Duval on a personal basis. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah we, we go cycling every Sunday. Um, <laughs> Diane Keaton as Kay Adams, Talia Shire as Connie, and John Cazale as Fredo. Like, they really did nail the casting, didn't they? Like, when you, as you said, Ed, like, I think Robert De Niro was due to take place as well. Um, But there was, was it The Dumbest Gun in the West or something like that? Was was a movie that kind of came up, and I think Al Pacino was in that. And I think they basically did a swap. Well, some kind one. of switcheroo happened, yeah. The, the two the two Paramount and whoever the other one was reached some kind of agreement and released Pacino. And, and here we go, you know. I liked the story that when they were trying to pick the character, you know, the actor that played um, Don Vito, that it was between Lawrence Olivier and Marilyn Brando. And Olivier said he was too sick with him, you know, staring him. I think it was Sleuth. And for Marilyn Brando, the studio didn't want him. And Francis Ford Coppola didn't want to film like an audition with him so basically he just kind of set it up that they were just going to just 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 film him they weren't going to do anything at all with him and he put the cotton buds in his mouth then as well to try and ed you're not you're you're nodding at all this and i'd say anything i'm saying here ed's there going i know it all i'm, I'm actually <laughs> writing my great godfather book right here at the moment <laughs> my, my little tribute scripts that no one will ever write or see or will never be made by anyone because it's terrible uh you're not going to be in a show sorry about that <laughs> your past will already be cast um yeah, I, I, I well look I'm I'm not as big a nerd about this film as some people are about some films but uh, I do I like hear, it. I, I, I can hear your copybook turning from page to page <laughs> so my question is how many pages of notes did you write down on this movie? All, all of all of them look all of them. <laughs> <laughs> the notebook Excellent. is full. <laughs> um will we get into the story will we will we pull it in will I kick us drag us kicking and screaming back into just how the whole thing unfolds? I think that's that's probably best because I'd like you say there's a lot in this film. 
Yeah, there is. There's, there's like a uh, to what you said, Sean, earlier on. It's going to take up three hours of your life, whether you like it or not. Mm. But it's also not a film that you can watch once and get. Yeah, like, you really can't. And and like you, Sean, I think I probably saw it in my early teens and went, oh, "That's just a mob movie with some shooting and some cars being blown up, whatever." Yeah. Like, and then I probably came across it again by chance several years later, and I went. Oh my God, <laughs> what's happening here? And 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 every time I rewatched it since now, it's got a bit less. Obviously, I, I don't know how many times I've seen it. Quite a few, but for certainly for the, those first couple of watches, I was like, you're picking bits out, and you thought there's a whole team there, there's a whole thing happening. Never saw that before. How is you know how did I miss it? And and there's there's so much going on. There's so many subplots. All of the characters, so much depth, and the whole thing like there's you know. There's duality, there's good versus evil, transition, change, America, the American dream, what even is America, like the migrant experience in America, racism, misogyny, vengeance, hypocrisy, and, the, and this whole juxtaposition of inside and outside. These things are all running through it, and it's, and it's all set against these characters who are almost Shakespearean in, in the sense that they have, you know, they're great characters and they're great people, but they have these flaws that inevitably drag them down, like, like Sonny and his penchant for violence, or Fredo, who's you know, a good guy and, and smart, but kind of weak, you know, and, and these different, these characters with these flaws playing through all of these different themes that are happening. Uh, I, I just think it's, it's working on so many levels. And, and even like the, the side characters, your Clemenza's and your Tessio's, they're, the dialogue gives them a bit of depth that you just don't see, you know, in, in most films. Like What I find interesting is I'm just looking at the IMDb page here. And despite the fact there's 800 million uh, story plots in this, the uh, story plot of the Godfather from IMDb is the aging patriarch of an organized crime dynasty in post-war New York City transfers control of his clandestine empire to his reluctant youngest son. <laughs> They're going. I know it's like yeah. the three-line Netflix uh, intro. Also, Seriously. also reluctant. That's a bit generous. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe. Oh, I don't know. Okay, that's not just me. Oh, Daddy, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the whole thing, isn't it? Uh, you, uh, as you look at it, right, so he rocks up. Now, you're 15 minutes into the film before you meet him, and he rocks into this Mafia wedding in his American Army uniform because he's back from the war, and he's a war hero, and he's straight-laced and all this kind of crack. And and gradually he transitions, and gradually he gets less and less, and we'll talk about the lighting because the lighting is one of the amazing things, but gradually he gets less and less lit and gets more and more into the darkness, and his clothing changes and his demeanour changes. And then they fire him back out to Sicily. And he's in he's in bright lights again, and this is almost his last chance at redemption. And then everything he touches goes to crap. Basically, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he's back in, and, and he's back into his full self. And you're wondering, well, which what's the real Michael here? You know, is it is it the guy who's in Sicily, who's completely head over heels in love with Apollonia, or or is it is it the guy who's in New York shooting a cop in the face, you know, <laughs> which, which one's the real him. And you see this transition as well in the opposite direction with the father who goes from this kind of cold cut mafia character who has these rules and will do these things and insists he's not a murderer in spite of the fact that he goes around murdering people, but he'll do these things. And then as the movie gets on and he, he, someone tries to kill him and he steps back and steps back. And in the end, he's just this old guy playing in the garden with his grandkids, you know? So who's the real Don Corleone? 
this whole transition is happening. Sorry, I'm waffling now about transitions and themes. Can you tell I like this film? I'm pretty sure, like, this is you, you're yeah, literally probably, chess. Yeah, I, I, I think you've actually read your entire notes there in the last about two minutes. <laughs> I'm, only, I'm only getting started. <laughs> so, the question then is what the like when Michael comes back at the start of the movie, do we think that his plan is to get back into the family, or like you know, the movie obviously goes into explanations, but from a kind of a character point of view, do you think the plan is to get back into it? or to stay out of it and actually try and be kind of just straight-laced and not involved in it. Now, Ed, you're going to probably tell me 27 million kind of words of uh, explanation here, so I'm going to let Sean answer some questions good, first. Good, good idea. <laughs> All right, well, what's the questions then? <laughs> About Michael and what his kind of motive was when he comes back at the start of the film. Like, does Do you think that he wanted to try and actually be straight-laced? Because when he starts to take over... And he says to Kay, basically, will be legitimate within, I think it's five years. But then the question is, did he ever really believe that? And did he even want to be part of it? Or did he feel he was dragged into it after the assassination attempt on his father? I don't, I know. I never got the feeling that he was dragged into it. I think that his signing up to go and join the army, this was his version of a rebel face. You know, when you have a family who are so steeped in crime as the Corleones, <laughs> then going straight, is the rebellion face, you know, instead of, you know, vice versa. Um, I think in a way he looks up to his brothers a lot and yet he is clearly the eldest, if not in years, then in mindset. Um, and, you know, he kind of looks at Sonny as that, you know, the, the almost the, no, the doofus is Fredo, but the, uh, the kind of the jock is Sonny, the doofus is Fredo, and he's always going to be the responsible one. But I think that goes deeper. I think some part of him always knew that he was going to have to run the family. Um, and, you know, he went and got his discipline by joining the army. He was open with Kay from the beginning in what his family does. You know, if he was, say, going to break away altogether, arguably he wouldn't have gone to the wedding, but he would have been maybe a bit cagier about what they actually do. You know, maybe there to show lip service only. So I never got the feeling that he was dragged into the family. I think the act was soldier, Michael. Or maybe he was always soldier, Michael, but the act was who he was a soldier for. Um, what, do think, what do you think, Ed? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I, one of the questions I've asked myself is whether, was he drafted into the army or did he volunteer? You know, uh, I think, I think he volunteered. I've read the book. I think he volunteered. He volunteered? Okay. Yeah. So... In that scenario, you're right. It's a, you know it's a conscious act to do something different to, to what the family has done. I I my, my feeling is that he's not been dragged into it. Is the wrong word. I think he values family, and I think we see that later when the interactions between him and Kay over the kids and all that kind of stuff. I think he values family extremely highly, and and I think he allows what happens to the family to send him down this path. Now he doesn't fight very hard against it, right? Mm. He doesn't kill himself trying to get out of the way of it. You know, he always had the option to not go and shoot a cop in the face. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we all have that option every know, day, right? Ed, really, when you think of it. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and most days, most of us don't do it. So uh, he's he, he goes down the path. And I think he goes down the path because he feels he has to defend the family. And that's important to him. But it's not killing him to not do it either, you know. Yeah. Um, now I think Kay is an interesting one, and and how complicit is Kay in all of this? So she certainly starts out quite innocent. Um, 
and, and she's probably the only female character and it's one of the criticisms she's the only female character who has any depth at all the rest of them are victims or completely dependent on the men in their lives yeah Connie doesn't exactly yeah, but, come you know have much kind of like unfortunate dependent in, in this at all like Connie's a plot device in this film yeah god lover she is you know <laughs> which is a pity uh, and that's probably the, one of the criticisms I have of the movie is that really now maybe maybe that's just the like it's the mafia it's the man's world apparently but Anyway, that's that's criticism. It doesn't it doesn't develop the female characters particularly well. But she's Kay is the only one with any depth. But she certainly starts out as innocent. But it's obvious to her quite quickly what Michael and his family are, and and the scene in the hotel where they're having dinner and 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 you know he buggers off and says I don't know when I'll see you again, and then he rocks up five years later in his mafia hat in <laughs> a load of henchmen. Yeah. And says, well, do you want to come and marry me now? And she goes, Grant. <laughs> you know? yeah. So she has to be some way complicit in this. And, and we see her, even towards the end of the movie, she gets darker, you know. And we see her, she interrogates Michael and, and asks him, you know, did, did you have your brother-in-law killed? And he says, no. And does she believe him? Who the hell knows if she believes him? But she buys it or she accepts it. And, and she walks out of the room to go and get a drink. And it's almost like, they're going to, okay, we're going to move on with our lives now. But you see her then standing outside. She's quite darkly lit and the door closes and she's back on the outside again. But she stays, you know. You know, Joe, I think actually on that, and this hit me on this watch uh, most, is that that scene where she asks him, I, I was kind of thinking, she's not asking, did you have Carlo killed? She's checking to see if he's going to lie to her face. Yeah. And he does. And I think that's nearly a, Great, we can lie to each other, and this is how we can do this marriage. Um, yeah. and that she, last she can't look at the be end, that naive, not at all, you know, not at all. Yeah, like that uh, last look at the end, they know, yeah, but yeah, and, and it's and again, and I, I keep going back there, like, but a bit of the Carmela, Carmela Soprano vibe. I was about to say, Carmela Carmela knows, yeah, yeah, Carmela knows exactly what Tony's up to, but she wants a nice house and a nice car, so she goes with it, you know. But do you think the final scene then in The Godfather when she sees the door being closed out and everybody kind of swearing fealty to the new Don is her, as you said, um, Sean, kind of saying, I'm happy to live this life of lies to each other. I just never want to be presented with the truth from a kind of point of view of almost plausible deniability kind of saying, you know, oh, was he that? I never saw that. That's a bit of a shock to me. Uh, his don't ever ask me about the family business. I think that's almost a plea as much as because it's, it's put across as a command. Don't ever ask me about the family business. I think it's a plea. I think for Kay to be able to live with herself, she has to stay on this side of the door, you know, yeah. And that kind of if if I'm going to sit there and start asking about the family business, if I'm going to be in the room where it happens, then you can't have that plausible deniability. You are complicit, if not in action, then in inaction, whereas you still are if you're on this side of the door. But no, I'm not. No, I no, I, I wasn't there. I wasn't there for the decisions. I didn't know. And it's a, you know, it's an argument you see on so many roles and so many people. It It's not quite the, I was just following orders, but it could kind of fall into the same camp a little bit. So, go ahead, Joe. I was just going to say, sorry, remind me again, what's the time difference between, say, when he basically says, I'm going away, and going to be gone for a few years, to when he comes back and basically, Ed, as you said, just comes back and says, hey, I'm back. Anyway, let's get married. It's two or three I, years, isn't it? It's 10 years overall. This film is 45 to 55. 55, yeah. So, um, and he's gone, I think he's gone for a year and then he's back for a year. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, but it's yeah. just hilarious, isn't it? He just kind of rocks up. Sonia, my ex-wife was uh, bombed and she's now dead. But anyway, I'm back. Uh, I forgot about her, so let's move on. I was kind of caught when I was watching the uh, this the last day because my version I was watching didn't have subtitles. So a lot Same. of this stuff <laughs> in Italy, I was there going. What parts had subtitles and what parts didn't? That kind of catch me. It's like watching Captain Phillips years ago and there was no subtitles on the version I was having. And I was there going, it actually makes this actually more interesting because I have no idea what's being said, just like Tom Hanks. Clearly, he has no idea what's being kind of said in this situation. I, I think, think there are, are scenes, though, that are in Italian intentionally so that you don't understand it. I yeah, Solotsko and the Solotsko yes. McCluskey, that's all. That was never subtitled. I think you can no. subtitle it, but it wasn't designed to be subtitled and that's like that's done to put you on the outside so that you are not fully aware of what's going on it's like you're at the wedding yeah and you can see the stuff but the real stuff's happening back there and and it's the same with the when you when you start into that scene like it's shot through the window on the outside outside jack dempsey's and outside so much of the film is shot through glass and through half closed doors and you know it's always trying to create this you're on the other side of what's actually going on impression um I think what's really good as well is after, say, the you know the assassination attempt, um, it kind of gives every character, like Sonny, uh, Tom Hagen, and Michael, kind of their own kind of scenes where it shows them and what they do when they're in control, when they're in power, and things like that. Like one of my favorite scenes is when Tom Hagen goes to see the movie producer fella, and of course, yeah. But what I love about it is I, I love after the movie producer understands who he is. And they had, they're having dinner back at his house after he's given him the tour and things like that. And he starts completely freaking out at Tom Hagen because he's kind of basically, you know, saying, who the hell does Don Vito think he is? And I love the way he's going mad. He's just shouting and roaring. I love Tom Hagen just sits there as if to say, I do not care a single bit of what you're saying. He's asked for a favor. If you don't grant it, that's your own trouble. And I'm going to just walk away from this and leave it alone. And there's this wonderful, it's a different control than we have with Michael, say, we'll discuss in a few minutes in the scene in Las Vegas. But it's just as, like, Tom Hagen is, for me, I think Tom Hagen's a brilliant character. I think he's just brilliant because he, do- he gets his hands dirty in his kind of way. But all the scenes with him, he's very much kind of, you know, he's trying to find the best compromise to get through a situation. And you see it specifically when Sonny takes over and it's completely just, he can't be handled with his rage. There's a, I think with Tom, now I might be wrong, but there's only two scenes out of all of Tom's where you could be like, listen, a lawyer will put you down for that one. And the rest are so clever. They're so well done that he generally is protected. Like when he refuses to take the letter off K, for example, because if I take this letter off you, that that shows that I might have knowledge of Michael's whereabouts. Okay. Yeah. Now we don't see him and Khartoum, but we do know. I mean, of course we know that he might not have swung the blade, but he made sure that that happened. Tessio at the end, when Tom says, I can't get you off. That's another one. It's like, okay right you're, you're in the muck now and it's the role of tom to be like he is the voice of reason he is the legal eagle so he's so protected for so much of the film that you could in theory say the police descended on the corleone mansion tom could probably get off that's how li- clever he's written what i like with tom as well is in that scene with tessio at the end when he's basically going can, can you get me off tom hagan is the only character i'd say in this film where he can say to someone who's about to be murdered I'm really sorry. There's nothing I can do. And you wouldn't blame 
Tom Hagen. Because mm. It's just the type of person he is. Yeah, you're kind of there going, yeah, this guy's kind of, he's outside of all this. He's involved, but he's completely outside of it. So it's kind of weird to think of it, isn't it? It's because you've kind of got, Sonny is completely involved in it from the absolute get-go. You've got Tom Hagen, who's kind of in and out of it. And then you've got Michael at the start, who's who we were kind of presented to be totally out of it. And then kind of, you know, by the end of it, you see the complete shift. Obviously, Sonny is dead at that point. Tom is kind of pushed a slight bit out. And then Michael is completely now the ruthless leader of the of the crime family. Yeah. I mean, he is pushed out. I mean, I, like Michael tells him, you're out, Tom. And that's it. <laughs> you know, and there's no arguing with him. Uh, and and, and Fredo, Fredo's packed off to Vegas, you know. This is all Michael's creeping control coming in and, and changing it and moving it around to, to suit him. And do you do you think the scenes with Vegas and trying to buy out more green again? Do you think that is a kind of an honest attempt to get them out, or what do you think the game plan actually was there with it? It's hard to say. I mean, is is it's an attempt? I don't know. Does he see the writings on the wall right in New York? Because he can see the the issues that are building up against them. Maybe they don't want to get into the drugs game. His dad didn't want to do it. I don't think Michael directly kind of addresses that. And I think he sees the casino and and that world as um, uncompeted for territory. He can go there and, and they can make a living. And maybe it's legitimate, maybe it's not. But it's a good way for him to ensure the family future and the fortune and all the rest. I, I think whether it's legit or not, or he's trying to get out or not, is secondary. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think, uh, I think in in his own moral code, uh, I think the Don says this himself. In, in their moral code, gambling, prostitution, these are harmless vices. Of course, they're not harmless, but in their moral code, these are harmless vices because there's no one directly being, let's say, when I say hurt, I mean they're physically hurt again in their own moral code. Whereas drugs, straight away, that changes the game and their fear then of losing all of their control. So I think that. In his own way, Michael looked at the move to Las Vegas as a legitimate, we can still stay in our sphere. Uh, Ed, I think you're totally right. I think he was facing a choice. It was either we will be run out of New York and you know maybe I can do this legitimately and move to Las Vegas and or we have to absolutely up the ante. And when Mo Green reacts the way that he does, Michael at that point kind of knows like, They've all got to die. And I think this was the last attempt to not have as much bloodshed. Uh, that's how I see this scene. Him him going to Vegas, it was definitely, he was going to strong arm. Like, Mo, sorry, Mo Green, whatever way this story went, he was never having a happy ending. Um, but I think this was Michael's last bit of maybe humanity in this film. I think as well, there's a, there's a lot of kind of stuff going on in the scene as well that kind of adds to it, I think. I think you know, when they arrive and Fredo has this whole party organized and things like that, and Michael just kind of comes in and just kind of says, just get rid of everything, Like We're here on business. We don't have time for this. I think there's a kind of a slight sense of desperation to try and say, let's just try and get this done. I just want to have this done. Get us out of here. And then Mo Green refuses to sell. Then, you know, you see that... Fredo's being treated badly by Mo Green too. Then Fredo takes Mo Green's side over Michael, and you can really sense the frustration in Michael when he kind of says, "Basically, don't ever, you know, pick somebody else over your own family." I think, 
at that point, it's a kind of a massive tipping point for Michael. I just think that everything, including the treatment of his brother and his own brother and turning kind of against him, just kind of finishes him off, kind of saying, I don't have time for this. We can't do this. And basically, we have to do something else, which is basically murder everybody else. I think there's a couple of things going on there. So like the first thing going down there is, is the complete misjudgment of Michael by Fredo. And, and like he, in a hundred years, Michael does not want a room full of prostitutes in a band when he arrives in Vegas. That's just not who he is. It's just not, you know, and, and Fredo completely misjudges that situation. And then, like you said, takes my Mo's side. And, and that's a replay of what happened in the olive oil factory with Salazzo and Sonny and, and, Don Vito Corleone, you know, so Salazzo starts talking and he can see that Sonny's out for the deal, as he says himself, and and the Don shuts him down and says, don't tell someone outside the family what you're thinking. And yeah. then rinse and repeat, you know, 10 years later out in Vegas with Michael and Fredo. Uh, so, so again, part of this transition arc that Michael is on through the whole film of, of slowly turning into possibly a more ruthless version of his father, you know. And I think a lot of the kind of like in the movie, I think there's a lot of killings in this like that are done so beautifully. Like obviously the, the murder of Sonny is done as absolutely indulgent as possible. Think was that James Cancer was 127 or 147 squibs random and things like that to kind of go through it. But like when you think of like the murder of Luca Brasi, it just the, the murders are so kind of it's, how would I put it? They're done fast, but they're done with such intensity. And they're not glamorous no do you know that sometimes you get like almost gothic levels of you know this a shot to the head which is like the perfect circle and you don't see it and it's like oh this beautiful scene you can almost be filmed like a love scene but every one of these like and i wonder if part of it was because of the technology of the day because there's there's more than a couple of scenes where someone gets shot and the squib goes off five seconds later but (laughs) There's, you know, it's that kind of messy, almost like imagine a a packet of ketchup, that kind of thick gelatinous thing with the hanging down almost wrapper, Uh, particularly if you think of Barzini's death and there's the the two squibs coming out the back of him and obviously part of his suit is ripped. It's so unglamorous. It's so unsexy the way a lot of these people die that I think it's a really clever way of going, you know, you see you got the limos, you've got the money, you know, you can kind of walk into a room and be in command. But at the end of the day, this, you know, Mo Green who owns Vegas, you know, he's sitting there having a massage and the next thing, bang, his eye is gone. Yeah. And they kind of, and they move on very fast. Like when the person's yeah. dead, move on, new scene, we're done. We've shown like the same with say the, the baptism scene and you see basically the, you know, the destruction of the rest of the five families. Like, it's a phenomenal scene. It's absolutely brilliant. Like, Michael's away from all of it, and here he is, like, you know, the baptism of his child, and same time then, his ascension to Don is happening in the background, and it's just done. So, again, it's all clinically. They're all just killed, and it's move on very fast, and the baptism ends, scene ends, and we're moving on, and that's it. And it's perfect. But, they, and you, but you're right, and, and, and they... Some of the murders in the film are incredibly graphic, like the like the Luca Brazzi murder, where mm-hmm. he's garage and you can literally see the eyes popping out of his head. Yeah. And then some of them are so matter of fact, and so we've just killed a guy, and now we're going to go have lunch, right? So and yeah. the scene where you know that the, the line where Clemenza says, you know, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's also improvised, I believe. That's right. But, yeah. It, that's such a matter of fact killing. Like we just pull over to the side of the road and we shoot this guy in the back of the head. This guy that we've known all our lives, by the way, and grew up in the neighborhood has been coming up through the gang. And we're not even all that sure that he did anything wrong, but we're going to shoot him in the back of the head and just 
go home with the cakes, you know. And uh, what does he say? Where's Polly? Well, oh, Polly won't see him no more. It's, yeah, yeah. Like it's no like that. tears are spared. No, none whatsoever. It's it's so, and that's Sonny's so ruthless like that, you know, and part of his flaw, I guess. But yeah. Um, what we were we were talking about just before the start of the podcast. I liked um how you know when you see Sonny like he's almost never in control of most importantly himself. He's never got the ability to kind of just maintain a kind of you know a steady balance. Like when they find the um the cops outside the mansion taking all the license plates, and he sees the guy with the camera and he just takes the camera and he smashes it on the ground. And we were saying like that was improvised. And again, then the throwing of the money back to him because James Khan said he grew up in a place that where you you broke it, you bought it kind of thing. Like it's wonderfully petty to do it as well for the character just to throw him the money. And I think, Sean, it goes back to what you said as well. There's a scene, I can't remember scene it is, but James Khan is sitting down and he just gets up and he just starts walking into the room. And like, there's no dialogue. It's just, it's him. Just like the camera just stays where it is, but it's just him walking. And it's like, he's trying to, his his hyperactivity is taken over, and he's just he's just trying. He's his brain is going too fast. He can't catch up with what he wants to do, and it's just he's just completely jittery. He is like con- he constantly he is constantly moving. Yeah, even when he's sitting down, you know, his the hands are going and he's shouting, and and that's contrast 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 that with like the Tom Hagen character and the Mike Forleone character who are so reserved. You know, I I, I think it's brilliant. I think James Caan is brilliant in this movie. I, I, yeah. I think it's brilliant. Sonny is he is the reactionary yeah. Corleone. Michael is the schemer. Um and Fredo, in a way, Fredo is the best of all of them by being the worst at it. Like you know, even when the assassination attempt is done on Don Vito, like he can't even get his gun out on time. Like, and then instead of actually trying to help him, he just basically sits on the on the on the footpath crying his eyes out because he just doesn't have a clue what to do. Like I think I might be remembering this wrong, but I think in the novel there is, it's a short question, but there's a question of, he's so inept, was he in on it? Uh, but I think they nearly brush it off. So it's like, God love, Fredo's not smart enough to be in on it. Um, <laughs> he's not that uh, clever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, kind of like to, for him to rise up the ranks. And again, it's sort of, and he gets dumped on. So again, this obviously comes back a lot in Godfather 2. Um, I think is you get a lot more of Fredo and a lot more of his feeling of Godfather too, but it's it's there. He, it's not so much a criticism of this film, but the film treats Fredo the way his brothers do. Is we sort of forget about him a lot of the time. Yeah, he's just there. There's always even in the way that we've discussed the film, it's like oh yeah, and Fredo. But that's kind yeah, of how yeah, this yeah. film treats Fredo. Question for both of you. I'm just curious on this, right? We, we were just discussing, obviously, the different characters and things like that. And we said uh, earlier that Marlon Brando won the award for Best Actor. Do you think that is that he's the only one who should have won an award for playing a role in this film? Or did anybody else deserve one as well? Or even did anyone deserve one over Marlon Brando for their performances in this movie? Because if you think of it as well, Brando is like he's out of it for a hell of a long time, like you know, after the assassination attempt. And even when he comes back, he's kind of you know, sparingly used and things like that. And but he's, like he's a different character when he comes back, he's yeah, he's he's almost played two characters in this film, so maybe he gets an award for that. I mean, I, I think he nailed it, I think he deserved the award that he got, but there, I, the, it's hard, you know, like Pacino's brilliant. James Tan sure. is brilliant. They Bobby are, they... Duval is brilliant. Well, Bobby Duval again is this. <laughs> you have to say that. You're his now and say, uh, Hey, Bobby, I was bigging you up on this podcast I was on tonight. 
Um, so I'm just checking here. I remember reading the story once. Now I think it might be apocryphal because I'm I can't find the source. But basically, that Pacino was annoyed that he wasn't considered for best actor, but he he was nominated for supporting actor, but that he wasn't because he has I think far more screen time than Marlon Brando does. Um, and that there was, yeah, a, not an ill feeling, but certainly a bit of a, I mean, how much more do you want me to do? You know, Because I do, th- I think he would be the obvious other choice for an acting award. I mean, he was nominated. Um, I think Hagen, uh, Bobby, um, uh, again, I think, uh, Sonny, I mean, he plays the hothead very well. It's, it's a little bit one note, but that, that's the character. And you kind of know that it's going that. to end in tragedy for him as well, like because Sonny's not going to finish like on... that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, he's yeah. not going to be sitting on the porch looking at the sunset. Um... I, I think Ed, it kind of goes back to what you said, Ed, as well. It's kind of a case of uh, like Brando just dominates. Like every scene he's in, your eye is almost drawn to him because you want to hear what he's going to say because what he says is predominantly right, and it's kind of you know insightful and things like that like when people are asking for a favor at the start of the movie you're completely gripped by what he's going to say and like you know what he's going to do about it like and he talks about you know you you come here and you ask me for this favor and you say you're my friend but like you've never called my house you've never darkened my door and as you said it's this weird twisted logic that they live by and it's very much embodied in him more than anyone else so i think that like everything is kind of centered into him more than it is, say, anybody else, especially in this movie. It, it all orbits around him, for sure. And, and even after he's dead, he's still there. He, he's still there in Michael, very, very much. You know, we see it. We see it in the, in the way Michael carries and acts, carries himself and acts and sits and how he interacts. Like, Brando's character is the dominant character of the film, whether Brando or not is the dominant actor in the film. I'm not so sure, but it, like that's not to take away from him. He's brilliant, but he's... he's surrounded by a cast of Rolls-Royce actors, you know. I, I'm just thinking as well, all the all the different lines of dialogue in this movie, for some reason I can't get out of my head. The one line of basically shafting Tom Hagen is just kind of, you're out, Tom. That's it. That's kind of, all the years of service, yeah, that's fine. It's just, I just love the way he just kind of says it's just straight out deadpan. Yeah, you're finished. That's the end of you. Thanks very much. Do you know, actually, funny enough, a, 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 similar, a similar scene uh, is where Sonny is... He's raging, you know, the war is on. And he turns around and goes, you know, you wouldn't know you're not Sicilian. And Tom says nothing. And it's one of the only times you see Sonny actually go, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I messed up here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like one of the only times you actually see, all right, Sonny calms down. Because what finishes Sonny is that he can't calm down. Um, and he's an easy mark. That's how they're able to, to get him the way that they do. They're just like, here, what do you want to do? Slap his sister. He will drive to her house straight away. I think as well with Tom Hagen in that situation is that no matter who it is, if it's Michael or Fred or Sonny, like they'll always be, you know, Vito's sons and they'll always be protected as part of the family. Tom, no matter what he's done, he was just an orphan that they brought in. And at a moment's notice, I always kind of got that from Tom watching this film that he he kind of acts as if, say, you know, they could get rid of me at a moment's notice. I think he's, you know, he, I think one of the reasons that it works from playing it so kind of level with everybody is I think he thinks that if, if it ever went wrong, at least he wouldn't have necessarily enemies who'd immediately want to kind of, you know, get rid of him, things like that. And, you know, the respect that he clearly has across the five families is what will actually save him. 
he verbalizes it though. He, he like he comes out he, at points in the film. He has to remind the brothers that he's like he says it. I'm as much as his son. I'm as much a son to him as you are, Michael. You know he he verbalizes this one, and and Sonny particularly does put him on the outside. It's like Sonny's there's a there's a fight between him and Sonny, and he's like, "Will you just help me win? If I had a real consigliere, a Sicilian, I wouldn't be in this mess." You know, and 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 like you said, Sonny kind of goes, "Okay, that was too far," and he backs off. You know, but that's that's the Sonny character. Uh, he's just it, it's like when they when they when they killed Tatalia's son. Like he's he's positively euphoric that he's taking it up a level, you know. Yeah, because he knows that's where he's going to thrive, and he knows he's not going to thrive in in the in the Michael and the Tom world of the healing and dealing. He's going to thrive in war, although you know didn't end well from <laughs> thrived <Yeah>. briefly. <laughs> um, just moving on from the story because I know that's what Ed wanted to discuss about. Um, one of the things I wanted to look at was the reception the movie got, which is unbelievably overwhelming positive, right? On Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 97% tomato meter rating and a 98% audience score. Here is the most random bit of trivia you're going to know today, right? I found this out only by watching a video that was uh, released yesterday by Oliver Harper, the film reviewer. He was reviewing the movie Rush Hour with Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker, and he said the Rotten Tomatoes website was actually developed solely for that movie because the person who created it wanted to aggregate the Jackie Chan movie scores once he started actually working in America. And that is where Rotten Tomatoes came from. And that is the most fascinating thing you're going to hear today. Um, I can't believe that you've dragged Jackie Chan into The Godfather. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most fascinating thing. Nothing about how the fact that the baby being baptized is Sofia Coppola. That's right. Uh, No, that's not fascinating. Talia Shire is his uh, his Coppola's sister as well. There's a a load of his family in the movie. Mother and father in his family. Carmine Coppola co-wrote some of the music with Nino Rota. Right. Oh, actually, that was an interesting thing I found out just in reading that Nino Rosa was uh, disqualified from the original score. Um, yeah, why is that? Because I saw that when I was going through the IMDb list earlier on. Because, and to be fair, this is true. The love theme from The Godfather he had previously used mm. in another film. Now, like it is The Godfather love theme. Now, but the other mm. film was a bit like, well, actually. So yeah, so it, that was that was the reason. And unfortunately, it's it's right because you would think the music is so effective. So in terms of what a soundtrack should do, mm. every note of this soundtrack does. So you'd be like, yes, perfect, perfect. Give it the Oscar. Oh, it's the best two out of three deal, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was. I, I, it's a shame because the soundtrack is, I mean, it's so iconic. Bad. You know, we all you hear those first three, four notes, and everyone knows straight away what it is. What yeah, did you like? I, I listened to the soundtrack earlier on, actually. I was listening to it just as kind of working away. I don't think it's the soundtrack you'd want to kind of relax to, or maybe even kind of <laughs> more soundtrack you want to kill people to show. That's... <laughs> yeah. It's very much a kind of soundtrack of impending doom at an almost every single turn, like because the music will work away fine and it'll just change. You're going, pretty sure someone got murdered in this scene <laughs> anyway. Have to, Family Guy does a very funny skit on it. Uh, it's just, you know, I think, and now we cut to uh, man plays trumpet while people speak. And it's, you know, your standard mob scene. And they have to start speaking louder and louder because the man is just, you know, it's just basically, you know, a one note off the Godfather theme just gets louder and louder. And, louder, and it's like, just shoot someone. Like, <laughs> 
Um, just come back to Reddit for a quick second. I checked IMDb as well, and it's got a 9.2 out of 10 rating with 1.8 million votes. Um, I'm going to tell you what the top four movies are in reverse order. So it's number four is The Godfather 2, which is at nine. Uh, number three is The Dark Knight, which is at nine. I was surprised The Dark Knight was so bloody high. Uh, the Godfather is at number two at 9.2. What is at number one? Sean, you know, so don't I tell me. I do know, yeah, Ed, what, what do you think is at number one? It's going to be like Citizen Kane or something, isn't it? No. No. It's a lot more recent than that. It's actually a 1990s film. Me and Sean reviewed it a couple of months ago. So this is how you so you know if I've been listening yeah. to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, go on, fill me in. It's like, don't Shawshank. Shawshank, okay, yeah. I think we talked about this at the time. While the Shawshank <laughs> is as fabulous as its reputation says, it is, it is so... It's not better than The Godfather. No. And I love both films, but mm. The Godfather is it's so intricately made. But, but uh, so, sorry, going sorry, sorry, go on. Just 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 to finish that. Now I suppose I should say, in my opinion, uh, but I'm right. Um The Godfather is, I feel it's superior in every way except, and I say this with love, schmaltz. Because my God. The Shawshank will make me cry long before the, show, the Godfather ever will. I suppose you're not going to cry at the belief that uh, one man has taken the crime family to murder everybody and take control of the whole city. Um, the I'm question is for Mo Green. The, the question is basically, I know that the answer to this question, but I'm going to say it anyway. Is the reputation the movie have justified? I think it is. Yeah. I mean, you'll go a long, long way to find someone who doesn't like the Godfather. And even, so that's like that's like the first pass. Yeah, it's a pretty good film test. But when you get into the, the critical analysis of it from every angle you want to attack, it, from the soundtrack, from the cinematography, from the lighting, from the acting, the direction, the production. I'm not going to say it's faultless, but it's as close to a faultless film as you're likely to find. You know, I, I, I think it lives up to the billing completely. And, and yep. I mean, it's 50 years old this year. And what's mm. better since, you know? Sean? Um, I'm, I'm going to agree. I, I, was, I was saying this to you last night, Sean, when I was watching it. It was like, it's, it's rare you get a film with such a reputation that it lives up to it. In fact, in, in a sickening way, there's only one film that I can think of has a comparable, um, comparable where there's only one film I can think of lives down to the reputation. And that's Showgirls. I mean, that really is as bad as people say it is. But, you know, so like in, in, in a very kind of opposing way, they're both on the same pedestal. But it's, 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 I'm going to use the word slow. I can hear my dad screaming at this podcast right now, but it's a slow film that isn't slow. It's, the, it's perfectly paced. Uh, I'd agree with you, Ed, as well. It do, it's, it's not perfect. Sorry. Um, the female characters, for the most part, aren't characters. Um, you know, Mama Corleone is there. Okay, and then um, you know, Connie is there purely to set up the the Carlo and Sonny drama, and then to put Kay in the position of asking Michael. Uh, so, and then Apollonia is there to be killed. Um, so, yeah. it's like, mm. so that is a criticism. And the other thing is that, like you were saying earlier. You know, Michael goes, Michael comes back and, oh, he's been back for a year. 
I would have actually have liked to have seen just any, even his return. And if not his return, if they wanted to deliberately, if you wanted to see it all from Kay's point of view, then maybe a few more scenes in that year from Kay's point of view. Because show you're right. It does go from Apollonia is killed to that is really bad. At least I've got Kay. It's kind of how that comes across. I think with what you were saying, Sean, is, is uh, very much right. It's a complete slow burn of a film. And I think nowadays we're so used to everything kind of just being shoved at us at a million miles an hour that what we were saying at the very top of the hour was there's so much going on. There's so many different scenes and things like that. It's only when you kind of finish it and you kind of look back and as you do, you know, you'd be reading about different scenes. We're going, geez, there's so much crammed into it. But that works very much in its favor because it has to slowly integrate you into the world. It has to let you know what the family dynamic is and it has to show you how the characters themselves kind of change. Like again, as I said, you know, my I was always slightly, not going to say on the fence about it, but I was never s- certain about it. But having watched it again and now been reading about it for the last two or three days, the everything about it is just the meticulous planning all the characters, all the actors, and how it all works out. It is absolutely, it's phenomenal, but I'd understand if somebody said it's too boring, it's too slow, but for people, and I'm going to say, I'm going to hate myself saying this, but for people of our age, we've grown up with those kind of things, the slow burn, the character driven, the dialogue driven, and all that kind of thing. And it's, from that point of view, it's bloody, it's excellent. It's absolutely, it's a, it's a wonderful film. I have to try and sit down and watch the second one because I've never seen it. Um, Ed, don't you dare, don't you dare say that right now. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lament you have not seen the second one. I, I, I was going to ask the question. I mean, could you make this film now and put no. it in? No, you couldn't no. have a three hour film. No. And you, I agree. Yeah. I, no. I, I think at best you'd be, excuse me you'd be pushed to streaming um yeah. which is not necessarily a death knell but it wouldn't guess i don't think you would get away with this film today for all of the reasons that you just said we've grown up with this we're used to this you know it's always been there films just aren't made this way anymore but you like know, how how long is the wedding scene at the start of the movie it's like 35 minutes or something, something like that. it's yeah. a good chunk of the yeah like by the it's, time it moves on from that it's like it's quite a bit on it's 15 it, minutes before michael shows up you know, when I was watching it with Lorraine the last day, she was kind of there going, I'm enjoying it. But when they get off the wedding, for Christ's sake, <laughs> move on to something. And says, You turn around and put the can't get off the wedding because Michael hasn't arrived yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what you need to do is say, tell Lorraine to sit down and watch it another seven times <laughs> <laughs> and read this book written by Ed English. Understand. About the making of Godfather. <laughs> now, question you've kind of touched on a small part, a small bit there, and I'm just going to look into a small bit further. There's obviously no film is perfect. So, Sean, you've spoken about the kind of the you know the lack of female characters by and large in it. What are the other things in it that we kind of think are say? I'm not going to say bad. I'm going to say maybe differently missed opportunities or things that could have improved upon things like that. Ed, there's a few bits that are just they're just kind of rushed a little bit, or they're just they're plugged in. Like the scene where they're driving around New York in the taxi and before they kill Polly, that's all stock footage. That wasn't filmed for Godfather. They, they just robbed that and it's dubbed over and you can kind of tell. And there's the scene immediately before the argument between Tom Hagen and and the movie director character Wolf, I think his name is that's the scene where they're walking around the gardens, that's not those actors. And you can kind of tell that. You know, it's just 
that's why it's shot from behind and there's a hat on and he looks like Robert Duvall, but it's not him. I, I think they, for time and budget reasons, they slotted in some of these things that are a little bit less well shot and they stand out. And and before we wrap up, I want to I want to talk about how the film is shot and the angles and some of the lighting, but I I do think there are things like that that just let it down just a little bit, but you know you kind of have to be a bit of a nerd maybe to to to, to feel strongly about those things. Um, Sean <laughs> says uh, <laughs> says says Ed who clearly has a lot of stuff written in, in his new book about <laughs> yeah. about the Godfather coming this Christmas to a bookseller near you. Sean, what do you have? Um, I think, and maybe this leads on from it being a bit rushed. They talk, they talk about the five families of New York, but I'd argue there's three. Um, and there are, you know, they're all there in the scene, but this is the Corleone and the Barzinis and the Tatalias. Everyone is spoken about as if they're all as important. And I get the feeling they're supposed to be as important, but really you don't really know to the point where, and I hold my hand up, I'd take responsibility. I don't actually remember the other families' names because they're just not really there. It's kind of like they're padding it out a little bit. So that to me is a bit, if you've put such an emphasis on the fact that there's five families in New York, give us five families, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, there's, there's, there's not a lot else. I think I'd, I'd be nearly scratching stuff I've discussed. Uh, some of the, which I believe actually some of the things have been fixed for the restoration. For example, Sonny's fight with Carlo, I mean, it, it, it's it's, oh, it's now missed punches, is this? missed punches. They're in different <laughs> rooms, you know, kind of like that. Like that. I think I believe that someone has done a job on that for the for the restoration. Um, Ed, actually, I'm wondering, did you go and see it when they were they did screenings of it for the fiftieth? The 4K was in the cinema. No, I missed it. Uh, I, I, I was away I... myself because yeah. it, it was one of those one night only things. I was like, nah. Yeah, I think I kind of found out about it like five minutes before it happened, and I was like, "Oh, dang!" The, um, we'd, or- we'd organize a rescreen because those projects have gone well for us in the past. Shut <laughs> up! Um, <laughs> nobody knows what's wrong about Ed. Nobody <laughs> on that topic. George Lucas was an editor in some of these. <laughs> oh, George! Um, now, what we're going to do is just before we finish up, what we'll do is we'll indulge ourselves here. What are the good points of the film? And Dad, you can't say the whole film. You've got to be specific. And because that, I'm going to say it to Sean first, because we're going to let then uh, Ed take the pulpit for two hours straight while he it's tells us. Stop recording, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was like, it's all right, Ed. He said that you're not allowed to say the whole film. I, however, will say <laughs> I um, have. I have the book here, so I'm going to read the book from scratch for you and let you all understand what it's all about. Um, there's obviously so much. So I'll pick some of the scenes we haven't talked about. Um, at the Don's funeral, the moment where they realize it's Tessio. I think that's brilliant. Um, and earlier on in the film, I'm about to lose serious cool points with my dad. I'm actually not crazy about the scenes in Sicily. I think they're I think they're important and I think they're necessary, but I do think out of all of the scenes, I think because you're intercutting this with the war, I kind of want to go back to the war. Um sorry, I said we're talking about the good parts. Uh the bits yeah. where we go back to the war. Um the scene <laughs> in the diner is fabulous. Uh even whether you can understand what they're saying or not, you know what's coming and the way it's shot and the way it sounds is just fabulous. Um but I think. Right, the one that's come to the front of my mind, Michael and Enzo on the steps of the hospital. Mm. I think that is largely silent and it's 
brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. If I'm right, Ed, you'd probably be able to confirm this right. I think that um, on that scene, the, it was it was the actor's first job. So his hands shaking are actually him really shaking and not actually acting. Yeah, just pure nerves. And, and there's bits and pieces like there's that scene and there's the scene with Luca Brazzi. Like the reason Luca Brazzi is rehearsing his lines is because he's a wrestler, not an actor. <laughs> he couldn't remember the lines. And that's why it's shot from behind as well when he's talking to the Don because he, he can't pull off a proper face. Uh, and, and that Enzo scene is the same. It's it's, it's shaken. Uh, that I, I I'm going to go again on a rant, but that whole hospital scene is just phenomenal. It's just a phenomenal piece of of. Well, look, I I launch into the good parts then. So that the whole the whole the lighting and and the cinematography, and I'm going to talk about them both. Gordon Willis is uh, Gordon Willis or Graham Willis. I'm going to get shot if I got that wrong. Says he checking his notes. But yeah, Bobby Duval is listening to this right now. Going, yeah, hey, you better get this right. There'll be a horse's head in my bed in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Gordon Gordon Willis is the guy who did the lighting. This this kind of Prince of Darkness guy, right? So uh, his lighting is so precise that if if the actors miss their mark, they're basically invisible, right? And and they they shoot it all with such light and dark, like it's it's top lit or it's side lit. So so much of the film, you're only seeing half the character's face. And and as the movie moves along, characters transition from this kind of uplit or side lit to being completely lit or com- almost completely dark. And Michael goes in the dark direction. Kay goes in the dark direction. And other characters like the Don get more and more light. And even Sonny is, because we've talked about him being so animated and so vocal and so out in the open and so predictable, he's lit. He's, he's really, really well lit throughout a lot of the film now now this kind of light and dark thing wasn't new this was done by german cinema and film noir before it, but this kind of brought it into the color into the color era and it's been rinsed and repeat ever since like sopranos or any of these dark swedish things that are all popular at the moment all this light and dark stuff taken straight from godfather and then the other thing i want to talk about is the the, the, the angles that a lot of these camera shots are they're all your eye level with the characters almost the whole way through the film even as it opens like the opening scene where you, and you just get the the undertaker's mouth and he's like i believe in america that's that's the opening scene of the movie and you don't know what's going on and you can just see his mouth and you've got this really slow zoom back which you'd need you know a five million dollar computer to do now but back then it was just a guy standing there turning the zoom really slowly and and it comes back into an over-the-shoulder shot and all of a sudden you're at eye level with the characters and throughout the whole film, it's eye level with the characters to put you there, to put you in the room. Like it, it's it's really, really intimate. That that's the way it's intended. And there's only a very small handful of kind of overhead shots, and one of them being the assassination scene. And it jars. It actually jars because it's the first scene where you're going, oh, hang on, I'm looking down on this. I'm not in it anymore. Uh, I, I I just think it's that the whole cinematography of it is so well done, and I could go on for hours. Like about the hospital scene and the footsteps walking through the corridors, and and that's like it's almost Hitchcock, you know, but but it's 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 repackaged and it's made modern. I I just think that's that's on the second and third watch. That's the kind of stuff that draws me in, and then the attention to detail in the script is phenomenal. Like the the scenes that give Clemenza and people like that depth, you know, where he's in the basement and he's talking to Michael about how they were all proud of him being off in the war and being a hero. And like, this is a third string character who has two sides to his personality. Where are you going to get that now? You know, you're just not, he, he warns him to mind the kids backing up. Like you're given this depth. Okay. He's a family man, but he's a murderer. <laughs> like, he kills people for a living. 
but he's going out to get the gigs uh, and, and things like that. And there's the scene where they're all sitting around eating Chinese and it's one of the scenes where James Caan is walking around in a vest just because he needs to move. And they're talking about where they're going to hide the guns. So, so Tessio comes out and says, I know the place. It's got one of those old fashioned toilets It's got with a box and, and, and a chain like that. He says, and three times. It's so, so like something you'd hear in natural conversation. Yeah. But you just don't get that. You're like, you're not going to get that in the Avengers. You're just not. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> Jesus, don't insult the Marvel property on this podcast. <laughs> we'll get, get cancelled in. We're all getting sued now. Come out and say it. But I'm just like, it's that that depth and that intricacy and the interplay between the characters who, as long as they're male, all have depth and have background. That's what that's what I love about this film. That the story is it's it's a pretty like it's not a complicated story, you know. It's this guy who grows up in a mob family. Somebody kills his dad, and now he gets sucked into the world, and off we go. Like it's not on that level. It's quite superficial, but it's what's going on at the next level down, and the level below, and the level below. But that's it. Like like when you think of it as well. Like even if you just give it a, like I'm not even trying to compare like with like here. But like even say the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight starts with a bank robbery. That's all it starts with. Like sometimes it doesn't have to be the complicated, massively kind of involved kind of story. Like it's all down to kind of visuals, down to image, down to dialogue, it's down to characters. Sometimes, you know, nothing being said is better than a massive speech and things like that. Like you both mentioned, you know, the hospital scene, like that could just be a simple thing of he arrives, his, you know, there's nobody marking his father. Someone's going to try and kill him. It sounds like this will be done in two seconds, yet it's turned into this unbelievably suspenseful, really enthralling kind of thing of, you know, and then you kind of have a ticking clock element of what's going to happen. And more importantly, why has, you know, all this happened as well? And it becomes like you're kind of there going, what the hell is going to happen here now? And the suspense is through the roof on it. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm just going to say, bleeding perfect film. <laughs> despite all the issues you have so basically sure. uh, perfect. Yeah. at the end we're just going to do the last thing we'll do is like we've kind of done it with the reception part overall Ed what's the final word from you on The Godfather oh, I, th- I, I think it's cinematic or as close as you're going to get to cinematic perfection I, and I, I will fight anyone to the death who says otherwise <laughs> combat to the death by Ed English um, Sean what do you have in your final word I believe in the Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I, I, I enjoy that now. I thought that's great. Um, all right, guys, that is perfect. Thank uh, you. Excuse so- me, show. You What's no, your final I'm, thoughts? I, I'm the host. Like, I have no say here. All I'll say is it's not as good as any Channing Tatum film I've ever seen. Um, no, look, I suppose, see, I'm the outsider here because the two of you have watched it so much um, over the years, and I haven't. Like, I've watched it twice in my entire life. Um, it, like it kind of goes back to basically Sean what you said and Ed what you said it's, for me the best thing about it is it's a complete slow burn and it just takes its time it's not a film that can be made today there's no way you'd have a 30 minute uh, wedding scene where basically nothing's going on to a large degree and still be completely enthralling like I it's one of those films I think that I'd be opposite to you Ed I enjoyed it so much I wouldn't want to watch it again for a couple of years because I'd be worried that watching too much would take away my enjoyment from it. I always find that the movies I enjoy the most are the ones I watch the least because I don't want to kind of lose anything from it. Having read so much of the behind the scenes stuff, it adds so much more to the story that I'm kind of anxious to go back and watch it again. But because I enjoyed it, I'm going to wait. I'm going to leave it a couple of years and Let having, to, 
Yes, exactly. And go back to it. It's brilliant. It's absolutely phenomenal. It deserves every single accolade it's got. And I just think it's absolutely excellent. So, guys, there excellent. we go. Now, that is it. So, Ed, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. No with worries. Us. Thanks for Sean, having me, guys. Sean, thank you so much as well. Uh, always always a pleasure. That was a lot of fun. Plus, what a good film. <laughs> I've been your host, Joe Hurley. This has been Cine Star for the Clone Star Podcast. And we will see you again next week. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Thanks very much. Bye.